Well, in the Christian world, I think that there is much confusion over how God watches over us and what God's promises are to us and how we should respond to them. Heard a story of one preacher who was taking his first airplane trip, got on the plane, and as soon as he got in, he became very nervous and scared and started shaking. Of course, uh, being a preacher, he thought he shouldn't smoke, so he became a chain uh, nail biter, started biting several all at once and shaking so nervously. The guy next to him was uh, thought it was kind of strange. He struck up a conversation and asked him uh, where he's from and what he did for a living and found he was a preacher. He said, well, isn't it strange that you as a preacher are so nervous about flying in an airplane? Don't you believe that God's going to take care of you? And the preacher said, the scripture says, Lo, I am with you always. <laughs> Doesn't say anything about high. Of course, he got a problem because he applying the promises of God because he didn't understand what they meant. I think that maybe not that problem, identical problem, but there are many others that we have. Very often, I think we take scripture verses and use them as if they're kind of magical incantations or good luck charms, sort of pat answers. If we just quote the scripture, our problems will dissolve and go away. Remember when I was in high school, I was on a football team and uh, was living in Texas, and every summer, uh, for the two weeks before school started, we had football workouts twice every day. Temperature would be about 90 degrees, the humidity about 50 or 60 percent, and we'd work out for two hours in the morning and afternoon. At the end of the afternoon workouts, the coach would always have us run 10 100-yard sprints, back and forth, back to back. We'd run 100 yards, and we'd have about five seconds to turn around, catch a breath, and run again. Now, it wasn't just a fast jog, it had to be an all-out sprint. And I remember that I was a young Christian at the time and I just memorized Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I thought I needed something to get through those sprints at the end of the workout. So I'd be running along saying to myself, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And yet later, as I grew more mature in my faith and understanding of the Bible, I discovered that you should look in the context to understand what Scripture's mean, I saw in the context of of Philippians 4 there that Paul had been talking about learning the secret to be content in all circumstances. He wasn't talking about getting supernatural physical strength during football practices. That scripture then would apply not to being strong and making it through those 100-yard dashes, but it would apply to being able to be content in those kinds of circumstances. I could quote that verse, but it wouldn't make me beat the other people in the in the races. I could quote the verse, and it wouldn't necessarily make me uh, keep from blacking out. So I misunderstood what the verse meant, so I didn't apply it appropriately, correctly. I think a lot of times we misunderstand the promises of God, and we apply them wrongly. And then when our expectations are not fulfilled, then we think something's wrong with God. We think he is being unfaithful. And our whole the, the structure of our faith is shaken. And we're caused to doubt. Well, I think it will be helpful for us to look this morning at Genesis 15. 
we'll see an incident in which God makes a promise to Abraham. And I think we'll learn some things about the promises of God as we see how Abraham interacted with what God told him. In verse 1 of this chapter, God makes a promise to Abraham. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Now, of course, if we're to understand what this means and what fear he was having, we, of course, have to go to the context. In chapter 14, we find out what was going on, the situation that that brought about God's promise to Abraham. In chapter 14, we read that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities in that territory rebelled against Ketelamur and the alliance of kings from the east who had been exacting tribute from the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding territories. They rebelled and said, we don't want to pay tribute anymore. So Ketelamur and his allies came and conquered the peoples, put them in their place, and they took the peoples, most of the peoples off as captives. And among the captives was Abraham's nephew Lot. Abraham, feeling that he needed to look out for his own relatives, gathered together his 318 servants and got a couple of allies of, uh, in the, the territory in which he lived. And they chased after the army and rescued the people and then came back. And Abraham was probably fearing retaliation. He was probably afraid that Ketelamur was thinking, who is this Abraham? He's not a king, not even a prince, doesn't have any military experience. Who is he to come after my army and conquer it? Well, I'll get a larger army and come and, and snub him and put him in his place. So Abraham was probably fearing that. So God says, I will be a shield to you. On Abraham's way back from the battle, he encountered two kings in chapter 14. Melchizedek, who was king of the city of Jerusalem, and he gave Abraham a blessing from God. The second king, the king of Sodom, the king of Sodom said, Abraham, we are grateful for your saving us. We want to give you all the spoils of the battle. And Abraham, because he wanted to clarify in his own mind that he wanted, that he valued God's blessing above material gain, said, no, king of Sodom, I don't want the spoils. I don't want you to make me rich. God's the one who makes me rich. And so he refused that. And probably he was starting to fear that maybe he'd made the wrong choice. He was probably thinking something like, well, having the blessing of God is fine and good, but you know, it doesn't hurt to have a little money, too. Maybe I made the wrong choice. Maybe it's uh, important to have all those material goods to really have a full life. And so God also promises to him, Abraham, your reward shall be very great. Now, if you have a uh, King James Version or a New International Version, the last phrase of, of the promise reads differently. In those versions, it reads, I am a shield to you, your very great reward. In other words, God is saying, I am your reward. The Hebrew is ambiguous, could be translated either way, and I think, think that the New American Standard is correct in its translation because of Abraham's response in verse 2. And he says, God, what will you give me? So I think the New American Standard is correct in saying, I will give you some reward. Your reward shall be great. Well, this is God's promise to Abram. 
He says, don't fear, I'll be a shield to you. Your reward shall be great. Abraham could well have responded, well, praise the Lord, the rest of my life will be free of problems and hassles. It will be a life of comfort and luxury because God's going to take care of me. He didn't respond that way. And I think you would recognize that that response would be inappropriate. He also could have responded, well, I don't know what all this means. God's going to be a shield to me and he's going to give me a reward, but I know the character of God, so I know that I can be satisfied and confident. That would have been an appropriate response, but Abraham didn't even respond that way. Abraham responds, as we will read in a minute in verses, starting in verse 2, by asking a question and questioning God concerning his promise. Let's read verses 2 to 6. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man shall not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then Abraham believed in the Lord and and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now Abraham was worried that he didn't have an offspring, didn't have an heir. According to the customs of the day, if a man and a wife didn't have any children, they would adopt one of their servants. And that servant would become the heir of all their possessions. But Abraham was worried because God had promised him an heir. He promised that out of him would come a great nation and that his descendants would inherit the land. And Abraham was concerned that that promise be fulfilled. God confirms the promise and says, your descendants will be like the stars in heaven, innumerable. And Abraham responded to that promise, and verse 6 says, in faith. Because Abraham believed God, God counted his faith in such a way that Abraham was accepted as a righteous person, was fully accepted in God's sight on the basis of his faith, not his works. The thing that I want us to notice here is that though God had made a promise to Abraham, Abraham questioned God. And though God makes promises to us, it's not inappropriate for us to question God. Now questions, of course, can be of different sorts. Questions can come from a challenging spirit. Abraham could have have said, uh, well, who do you think you are, God, to promise me a reward and you haven't even given me a son yet? Or his question could have come out of unbelief. And he could have said, sure, God, you're going to be a shield to me, just like you were to Lot. He got captured by those kings and I had to be the one to, to save him. But Abraham's question wasn't like that. His question came from faith. As we can see, verse 6 is commending Abraham's faith in this context. If we expand his question, I think we can appropriately expand it to be something like this. Well, God, I praise your name that you have given me this promise. But I have a question because I want to know how this promise fits in with your prior promise to give me offspring. Because, Lord, that's what I'm setting my heart on. 
I don't want a reward in terms of material gain. I want a son, as you have promised me. The important thing for us to see is that though God makes promises to us, it doesn't mean we can't question them. And indeed, at times we should. We should ask questions. Well, God, what does this mean? What do these verses mean and how do they fit in with these verses in this other passage? How does this fit in with the circumstances in my life? Am I doing something wrong that I'm not realizing the fulfillment of your promises? What's happening here? So in our own personal relationship with the Lord, we should it should be uh, one which we ask questions and we try to clarify our thinking. In our church, we should have an atmosphere of openness and, and uh, an atmosphere in which we can ask questions. I want you all to feel free to ask me and don't believe something just because I preach it. But ask me, well, how does that fit in with this other scripture? And where did you get that thing you said? Because I know I'm not infallible. And I want there to be a, an openness amongst us so that you can feel free to ask questions as to why we're doing things, as to what the scriptures say, as to where we got something that we have taught. In our homes, there should be the same kind of openness too. So that your children can feel free to ask questions. In some homes, that's not the case. In some homes, the teenage son or daughter may ask, well, Dad, can I go to a, a dance with my friends? And the father responds, no. And the son or daughter says, well, why not? Because I'm your father and I said so. Well, Dad, can I, uh, can I drink? No. Why not? Because I'm your father and I said so. Well, Dad, why do we believe the Bible? Because we're Christians and we're supposed to. That's why. And pretty soon the kids get the idea that questions are not really appreciated around the house. And they start, start to suspect that, well, the reason questions aren't allowed is because the parents don't really have any answers. Kind of like the old preacher who was training a younger man to take his place. And he says, son, whenever you get to a difficult passage and you don't understand it, just shout a little louder. And that's the way we as parents sometimes do. Our kids ask embarrassing questions or ones we don't have answers for, we just shout a little louder. But in doing so and responding that way, we're not being like God. So we see in this passage that God didn't chide Abraham for questioning him. He allowed him to have an atmosphere of openness in which Abraham could question God about his promise. And we need to have the same in our homes, in our church, in our own relationship with God. In verse 7, God elaborates a little further in the promise. And, uh, uh, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And then verse 8, we see a second question that Abraham raises. And he says, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? He said, I think his response is kind of like the man in the Gospels. Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Give me some kind of confirmation, Lord. I want that. That this is really so. And that we're really going to possess this land. In verses 9 to 21, describe God's answer to Abraham. His answer came in the form of God entering into a covenant with Abraham and telling him 
how he could know for sure that God's promises were true. Let's read through these verses, 9 to 21, and then I'll make some comments to help explain them, and then we'll go back and see some more things that we can learn about the promises of God from this section. So God said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite, and the Cadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. So Abram asked the question, how can I know, God, that these things will come to pass? And God's response was communicating to Abram in terms of his own culture, terms that he would understand. If Abraham lived today, I think it would be very likely that God would maybe hire out a lawyer, or go down to a stationery store and get a, a standard contract form. Say, Abram, I'm going to write out a contract and sign my name here. But because he lived in, in this age, 4,000 years ago, he used a, a form of communication that was familiar to them, that of a covenant. And what they would do in a standard, as a standard practice in making a covenant was take certain animals and split them in two and divide them. And then all parties making the covenant would walk between those animals. And they would be saying, in effect, if I don't fulfill my part of this covenant, may you do to me what we have done to these animals. Split the body into two. So it's uh, something they would take very seriously, obviously. Then verse 12, we see that, that uh, part of of what took place here apparently was in a dream. Abraham fell asleep during it. Verse 13, God tells him that your descendants will be strangers in a land not theirs. Obviously, he's talking about Egypt and the enslavery and the uh, slavery that would take place there. And then notice in verse 16 something that's very important to understand about God's ways. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The Amorites are one of the tribal groups that lived in the land of Canaan. And what he's saying here is, is I'm not going to give you the land of Canaan until the people are worthy of total judgment. Some people complain that the Old Testament is a bloody, gory book and God is, is wrathful and unfair and he 
gives his people a land that belongs to somebody else and drives them out. But God is saying here, I'm not capricious in the way that I'm doing this. I'm judging very closely their hearts. And right now, though they're sinful as all men are, it wouldn't be fair to give you their land. But in several hundred years, I can look down the corridors of time and see what they're going to be like. And their iniquity will be complete then. Their culture will be so degraded, they'll be so immoral, that the only thing that will be right for them is total annihilation. And he will use Israel as his instrument of judgment then. Just as he used the Assyrians and Babylonians as instruments of his judgment against Israel at, at other times. Then verse 17, we see a smoking oven and a flaming torch passing between these pieces. And we might well ask, well, what in the world are these? Verse 18 seems to explain it. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So the uh, smoking oven, the flaming torch were symbols of God's presence. They symbolized God passing through the midst of these sacrificial animals, of the, the covenant animals. And then in verses 18 to 21, the content of the covenant is made. He says, I'll give you this land from the river of Egypt all the way up to the Euphrates River, the land which is currently occupied by all these people. He lists in verses 19 and 21. Let's see what we can learn about the promises of God for ourselves from this passage. One thing we notice is that though God has made promises to us, it doesn't mean a lack of hardship. Because notice in verse 13, God says to Abram, to your descendants, I've given this land, and yet they will be enslaved for 400 years. I don't know about you, but I've heard plenty of preachers on the radio and elsewhere say that if you really walk with God, you won't experience financial difficulties or sickness or any kind of uh, big problems. But that's not true and that's not accurate. The Apostle Paul, and if you look through uh, 1 Timothy, you can see very clearly there that, that sickness is not something God promises freedom from. He tells Timothy, Timothy, for your frequent ailments, take a little wine for your stomach. Apparently he had dysentery and the alcohol and the wine would help kill off the amoeba. Something like that. He doesn't say, Timothy, have faith and God will heal you. He doesn't say, go to your local faith healer because all of your illnesses will be taken away if you disbelieve. At the end of 1 Timothy, the, one of the last verses, he says, I left behind one of my fellow workers in this, in this city because he got sick. And Paul doesn't say, well, there wasn't a healer around, or he doesn't say, we lack faith to bring about healing ourselves. He just sees sickness as something which God gives Christians from time to time. We see here that, that hardness, hardship, was part of the lot of the heirs of the promise. Though God has made promises to us, it doesn't mean our lives will be free from problems. We might have plenty of problems. remember the prayer of one man that struck me very much along these lines. A woman had come to a, I was at an elders meeting at a, another church, and a woman had come to be prayed for because she's having back problems. 
And one of the elders prayed for it, and he was a man who had a heart condition. He was in his early 50s and only expected to live three or four more years. Could only work half-time, had to pop nitroglycerin tablets every uh, hour or two to stay alive. And he prayed for her. And he said, God, we ask that you will not take away this woman's back problem until she learns the lessons that you have intended for her in this. And then we ask that you will comfort her, her body and take away the problem. It really struck me because it's so different from the way we often pray. The way we often pray is, God, free all of us from all of our discomfort and problems and hassles. Make our lives easy in a Disneyland type of existence. But he was perceptive enough to see that God had plans greater than our mere physical comfort. God makes promises to us, and they abound in Scripture. But he doesn't promise us lack of hardship. We can see that from from this passage as, as well as from elsewhere in the Scriptures. Another thing we can see here is that though God had made promises to people, it didn't mean instant fulfillment or success. Notice again in verse 13. They will be oppressed 400 years. God had promised this land, the land of Canaan, to the descendants of Abraham. But 400 years of slavery in Egypt, plus about 200 years until they went into slavery in Egypt, meant it was about 600 years until this promise was fulfilled. 600 years. God makes promises, but it doesn't always mean instant success or immediate fulfillment. I know for myself, several times, I have wanted to pray a prayer. Lord, make it so I never sin again the rest of my life. And I you know, think, well, God is against sin. He doesn't want us to sin. God promises that he hears our prayers, and wherever we ask, he will answer. And therefore, it's easy to think, well, there's therefore a prayer that's in fitting with God's will. So he should do it. Never again. Well, I have to suffer from, from being wrong in a relationship or having tensions or irritability or moodiness or feeling the blahs or feeling frustrated and upset and envious of somebody else's lot in life. Never again will I have to experience all that. But instead, there's peace and joy and love and, and great fulfillment. But God hadn't answered that prayer. He doesn't with any of us, I think. Because... Though he wants us to be freed from sin, he wants us to learn other lessons as well. In Judges 2 and 3, we are told there that, that God said that, that he wouldn't drive out all of the Canaanites from the land immediately because he wanted his people, the future generations, to learn war. Not that he wanted them to be bloody and, and he was militaristic, but because he wanted them to learn that by their own strength they were totally powerless. They could not win a battle against the Canaanites by their own strength. He wanted them to learn what it was in actual life experiences to have to depend upon God and then to see God come through in miraculous ways. And that's the same as he wants for us. This last week, I heard two different people in the church say, i I'm struggling with this thing. I've prayed about it, but where is God? I pray, I quote scripture verses, 
I try not to get in, give in to this sin. And yet, where is God? Why doesn't he just take away all of the problem, all of the trial and the struggle and the fight? And both these people were very discouraged. I think we all need to be reminded that that though God gives us promises, he doesn't promise us instant success. He doesn't promise that the uh, crabby spouse or neighbor will be taken away from us or the sickness or the financial problem. He doesn't promise that the temptation itself will all of a sudden leave and we'll never have to struggle with sin anymore. He promises us a victory through Christ, but not an instant success type of thing. We can see that also in Abraham's life, not only in the promise made to his descendants, but the promise to him. Notice back in chapter 12, verse 4. The last part of that verse. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then in chapter 16, verse 3. And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife. He'd been there ten years without God fulfilling the promise of a son. So he and Sarah concocted another way. And if you look over in chapter 21, verse 5, it says, Now Abraham was one hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. In other words, he had to wait for 25 years for God to fulfill the promise. And we see in the, min- in the meantime, after 10 years, he and Sarah started thinking, well, 10 years is an awfully long time to have to wait for anybody to come through with the promise. And Sarah said, Abraham, maybe we should help God out. Maybe you should take my servant, Hagar. This was a standard custom in the day. If you didn't have a son an heir, then you could uh, take one of your servants, have a concubine, and then that the offspring of, of that union would be the heir. He says, take her and get a son through her. So Abraham said, well, that sounds like a good idea. We have waited a long time. Maybe God wants us to help him out a little bit. And even after that, it was still 15 more years before God fulfilled that promise. But we need to wait for God to work out his promises. We need to endure and be patient. What were the results of the impatience of Abraham and Sarah? Well, there were tensions and conflicts between Hagar and Sarah. There were tensions and conflicts between Ishmael and Isaac. And then for hundreds of years, between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac, there were conflicts. It could have been, uh, could have been avoided had Abraham and Sarah simply been patient and waited for God to fulfill his promises in his time. I think what they did would be something similar to one of us. We had a problem with anger or anxiety. And we prayed, we read the Bible, and it didn't go away. And so we said, well, I'll help God out. I'll get some tranquilizers and use those to calm me down. I think that would be the same sort of thing. Well, we've seen here some of what it doesn't mean that God has made us, uh, from the fact that God has made promises to us. Though God has made promises to us, it doesn't mean we can't question and examine. Though God has made promises to us, it doesn't mean that we will, uh, won't have any hardship. 
Though God has made promises to us, it doesn't mean that we'll have instant success. But one thing we can see from this chapter that it does mean, that God's promises do mean, is that they are certain. Because notice again in the covenant form, in the covenant that God has made with Abraham here, God alone went between the animals. Abraham didn't. Abraham just slept through it all and saw it all in the dream. In other words, God said, I am binding myself to fulfill my part of the covenant and Abraham, you don't have any part you have to fulfill. I'm going to fulfill this no matter what. God's promises are certain. And therefore, once we find God's promises and are sure of what they are, we can rest assuredly in them. We don't have to doubt. We don't have to wonder, where is God? Christianity just doesn't work. Because we can know that He will fulfill that which He has promised. We need to be discerning as we search the Scriptures. We need to make sure that the promises we come up with are actually promises given to us. For instance, many Christians uh, land upon the promises that Jesus gave to the, to the disciples in John 14 and 16. The Holy Spirit will come and lead you into all truth and bring all things to, to remembrance to you. Those promises were given to the disciples. The apostles would be inspired to write Scripture because of that. And none of us is led into all truth or remembers everything Jesus said. But once we do find the promises given to us as, as Christians, then we can be sure of those and know that we have a sure anchor for our souls. When we find the promise that Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you, in times of loneliness, we can have something to hold on to and come out of our self-pity. When he says, when Paul says, in Christ there is no condemnation, and we can rest assured when we feel burdened by guilt and failure that we have forgiveness in Christ because we're in Him, we will never be condemned by God no matter how badly we fail. We find God's promises to empower us to do all that He's called us to do. And when we feel powerless and inadequate to live life, then we can be encouraged because we know that God's promises are sure. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You so much for this Word that You have given us this morning. Thank You for the example of Abraham, the promise that You gave to him. Thank You for his example of questioning, which shows us that we're free to question You, not to challenge, but to come to a more clear understanding. Lord, help us to understand aright what You have said to us. And then help us to believe. We thank you that you are a stable foundation for life. That you are utterly faithful, even when we are faithless. We thank you that you give us yourself. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.